Good morning. Invite you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis 4. Early in the summer, we began uh, as a church studying through the book of Genesis. We uh, took our time going through the first few chapters. Then we kind of jumped out to focus uh, specifically on the idea that all humanity is made in God's image and the implications of that for us, for understanding ourselves and the world around us. And now we're, we're back uh, in the text. Uh, we're in chapter four. We spent a slow pace in the first three chapters. The pace is going to quicken now because it's a pretty big book um, and we don't, we don't want to take 10 years to get through it, but uh, we're going to work our way through it. But as I was thinking about this and, and our plan, the pastor's plan to go through it, I wanted to give you an encouragement here because the way that we're going to need to pace ourselves through the whole book means that we won't be able to dig into all of the details in our Sunday gathering. And so I want to encourage us as a church to, uh, to take up a habit of reading along through this book as we study it as a church. There is so much that God desires to reveal of his heart for his people that, uh, that we won't be able to touch on all of it on a Sunday. And so as a church, I think that for our health, if you take up that habit as we are preaching through the book to just read through uh, the rest of the material that we don't touch on uh, and ask God to, to weave these things together um, and, and, and give us a fullness of his word. So this morning, uh, we're going to focus in chapter 4 on verses 1 through 16. And I'd like to read all of that now. This is for us God's holy and authoritative word. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying... I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother, Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain, a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? 
The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning for his people. In the first three chapters of our Bibles in Genesis, we we have what could be considered a, a prologue for understanding the history of humanity. God's work of, of going after and redeeming people back to himself because of what we studied in chapter 3 known as the fall of humanity into sin. Adam and Eve rebelling against God's command and therefore God bringing judgment on them. And there are promises that are given in chapter 3 about what will go forward. There will be enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, between God and his people. And there are promises of God's grace that will go forward. And here in chapter 4, we, we are at the beginning of the history of redemption. And today, we are still in that history. But at the start, we see We see these promises being laid out in fulfillment and humanity divided. In this story of these brothers born of Eve, we see the divide. We see the enmity take fruition. Humanity divided. This text demonstrates for us the the purpose Portration of sin, its ongoing effects in humanity. This origin story illustrates for us how the rest of history has taken place. There will be people. The earth will be filled. The mandate will be carried out to, to spread abroad on the land and to multiply. And in that multiplication, humanity will divide itself. And those who will follow the course of Cain in enmity of God, and those who will, like Abel, embrace faith and trust in their maker. The effects of sin on humanity are on display, and we need to learn something from this story. We need to learn about the nature, the character, and the power of sin and its effects on 
us as human beings and we need to learn something about God's ongoing outpouring of grace and pursuit of redemption. Here's our main point this morning. Students, you can fill this in on your sheet. And adults. We must see, this is what we should observe from God's word. We must see and trust God's abounding grace if we are going to rule over sin. We must see and trust God's abounding grace if we are going to rule over sin. I want to break this text down and pull out this main point for us. And we're going to do this scene by scene. Right? Take it scene by scene. So let's look at the first scene. This is uh, verses 1 through 7. Scene 1, a tale of two offerings. We see these two brothers, born of Adam and Eve, coming into the world. And we actually see at the outset, Eve with this proclamation of hope. In verse 1, Eve says that she bore Cain and I have gotten a man with the help from the Lord. Now, if you remember from chapter 3 and that promise that God gave that, that Eve, there, there would be a seed of the woman that would bring hope, that would bring redemption. Now, if you can imagine, if you've never read the Bible before and I just was giving you one page, one chapter at a time, and you read the first three chapters and you thought, there's going to be one born of a woman who's going to bring salvation. And then I handed you chapter four and you read this first verse. You would think, this is going to be a short story. <laughs> That's kind of Eve's response to God's gracious provision of her having a son. Having gotten, like, I have gained the one of the promise but also the promise of sin that would go forth comes to fruition in this story, and it's a sad one. A tale of two offerings. These two brothers bring offerings to the Lord, and as we have already observed in our reading of it, one offering is regarded and accepted by God, and one offering is not. Now, there is no real explicit answer as to why one is accepted and the other is not. But if we observe the details that are given, we notice that Abel's offering was an offering of first fruits, of the top, of the best. We can see this in verse 4. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. We can also observe Cain's response in how God does not regard. And it reveals, it reveals what was going on underneath in the heart of the offering that Cain brought. Cain's response reveals a heart attitude that was not wholehearted in offering to God. It was not an offering that was the overflow of love for God. It was the offering of the minimum. What's necessary? What do I need to do? It was a heart looking for just what is required of me. It's, it's a heart offering of really holding back. Our Bibles tell us that Cain brought of some of the produce. 
Cain just gave some of the produce. An outworking of a heart that's just seeking to, to what is required so that I can get some of the favor of God. See, Cain, he ends up viewing his relationship with God in a transactional way. What do I need to put in in order so that I can get out of this? It becomes transactional in his relationship to the Lord. What do I need to do? What do I need to think? What do I have to say? How do I just get some of the blessings? And if we're honest with ourselves, we can often operate with Cain-like offerings in our relationship with the Lord. We can maneuver and plot. We can act things out and speak in ways where we might not say it out loud, but what is going on at the heart level is I'm doing, saying, working these things out in order to gain some favor from God. If I consistently attend church, if I give some of my money to the ministry, if I let someone else go ahead of me in line, if I volunteer to make a meal for someone who is sick, etc., etc., we begin to, to build a case for ourselves that we, we think, I'm, I'm a pretty good person. I'm doing some of the things. Surely I deserve a little bit of blessing from God. And we tend to rationalize this this thought and approach by saying, I don't need all of it, right? I don't need God to, to pour abundance of wealth on me. I just, I just want a nice life. I just want things to go well. I just want some, some healthy days and some stress-free financial situations and maybe some conflict-free relationships. If I put in the pot, can God deliver those things in my life? What is required to gain the favor of God. We make the things that we do for the Lord a part of this transactional relationship. We treat God as part of a get a little, give a little, get a little relationship. And as Cain operates in this heart attitude, we see that the Lord has no regard for Cain and for his offering. Now notice back in verse 4, Abel and his offering. Abel brought of his first fruit. But notice what it says. It says, Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. Notice what is going on there it is not saying that the Lord took Abel's offering and that is the basis by which he had regard for him. He saw Abel's offering as an evidence of his heart. And God had regard for a heart that trusted in him. To give of the first, and consider this, Abel... I'm going to do that all morning, aren't I? <laughs> Abel is a keeper of sheep. He has a flock. And so his wealth is being built up as his flock 
prospers as more and more are born unto his flock. And he takes one of the firstborn, not knowing if the flock will be fruitful going forward, but of the firstborn and the fat portions of that and gives that as an offering, as an evidence of I trust the Lord. I trust the Lord. And so God has regard for Abel and his offering. This principle laid out here of giving of the first fruits is a principle that wants to get at the heart of the offering. Abel has a heart that loves and trusts the Lord and is eager to give of the first and the best. And God has regard for that heart. Abel's not waiting to the end of the month to see if he has a little cash left over. He gives of the first as an act of faith. And the author of Hebrews highlights this in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. We studied this sometime in the spring. He says, by faith, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as Righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Abel gives an offering of faith and trust. Cain gives an offering of half-heartedness and self-sufficiency. Abel becomes for all time an example of great faith because his offering was wholeheartedly trusting the Lord. This tale of two offerings, it clearly displays that as humanity divides and for the rest of redemption history, that God looks at the heart. And it is his, it's our hearts that the Lord wants. Are we called to obedience? Are we called to serve? Are we called to give? Are we called to live out lives that reflect who God is? Absolutely. Our hands and our mouths and our feet live out a love for God, but God looks at the heart that overflows in those things. He wants our hearts and hearts that are eager to obey him. Scene two, there is a crouching enemy that is there for all humanity and sin is this enemy. Look at the conversation that the Lord has with Cain, starting in verse six. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? We can understand that in the example of Abel. If you have wholehearted faith and love, will you not be accepted? The Lord goes, and if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Sin, for all the rest of human history, for every person that takes breath, sin is a crouching enemy contrary to you. Seeking to conquer you. And we see 
through the rest of the scene, the progression that sin has on Cain. We see it develop in his heart and in his mind and then carried out with his hands. It begins for Cain with a measure of self-righteousness and pride. How dare the Lord not accept my offering? I'm the one who toiled and worked and created this produce and brought it before the Lord and he denies this. And then out of that self-righteousness and pride, we see that further develop and it blossoms into jealousy over the acceptance of his brother. Jealousy and anger at his offering being rejected and his brother's offering being accepted. This sin seed has been planted in the mind and heart of Cain and it is beginning to bear horrible fruit. This sin seed planted in his mind, it becomes irrigated as he continues to mull over the circumstances and he becomes more and more self-justified and begins to develop more and more a judgment of not only his brother but of the Lord himself. And that thought is allowed to grow and bring the fullness of its wicked fruit. Anger spilled over into violence and violence carried all the way to the first murder. Sin is relentless. It seeks to always carry to the full its desire to conquer its victims, the human race. You see, Cain's response to the Lord when he questions him, where is your brother? And he says to the omnipotent one, I don't know. Ponder that for a second and see how quickly the downward spiral has gone in just one generation. The parents rebel against God by taking some fruit. And the son has murdered his brother and lied to the face of God. And all of it is marked by the same word, rebellion. All of it is rebellion against God, we see Cain here carrying full violence out of his hands, lying to the face of God, and even having the audacity to bring some sarcasm to the scene. Am I my brother's keeper? Like, you're the one in charge. It's funny, but it's not funny. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. The manipulation, the power of sin that we see take place here is no less relevant and present in all of our lives. There are a few things I want us to observe about sin that I believe will help us. First, sin is a presence 
in our lives, in my life and in your life. Our Bibles tell us the Lord says that it is at the door. That's not your neighbor's door. It's your door and my door. It is present in our lives. The working of sin in our sin-sick souls is present at our lives. And the presence of sin has sticking power in our lives. Have you ever tried to battle a particular sin? Have you ever noticed how increasingly difficult that becomes as you fall to that sin? It's this, this presence in our lives. And when we give way to sin, that particular sin becomes more sticky. It, it blossoms and brings fruit. Look what happened to Cain. Self-righteousness, pride, jealousy, anger, violence, lying. These things blossom in our lives because sin has sticking power because it's a presence in our lives. It is at our door. And we must see it as so. Second thing about sin, it hides. Not only is it at our door, but it is crouching, hiding, trying to make itself not known behind the door. The image here, and we've all seen similar things as we've watched Discovery Channel specials of that cheetah creeping through the tall grass, stalking its prey, crouching down out of sight. And, and we know, we've seen enough failed attempts on the Discovery Channel, we know that the success of the hunt very much depends on how long that predator can stay out of sight. That's the point. It stalks its prey, staying out of sight until it's able to pounce Sin works the same way in our lives. It wants to stay out of sight. It doesn't want to be exposed. Sin loves the darkness. Sin hides. So what does this mean? Let me read a quote from the late pastor Tim Keller. He says this. He says, what that means is the worst things in your life, the character flaws and the sins in your life that are most going to ruin you or are ruining you or are making or going to make the people around you miserable are the things, the character flaws, you least will admit. They're the ones you're in denial about, the ones you rationalize and you minimize. Whatever the consequences happen to you, when someone brings them up, you rationalize them away. This is how sin works. The reality is we all have those sins that we don't want to talk about. We don't want them exposed. We have all sorts of excuses to brush them away. And so we need to ask ourselves, Honestly, what are the crouching sins in my life? Do you know what they are? Can you identify them? Do you know where they lie? 
Is it that little bit of pride that continually wells up, that, that causes you to look across the landscape of others and constantly judge, to build yourself up, to knock others down, and you excuse it away because there are some flaws in others. And I can see them and things that they should work on and should change. And so you have ways of, of sweeping that, that prideful judgment away. Young ones, is it a disrespect for your parents? And you think, I don't disrespect my parents. I, I, I'm always honorable before them. What about all the words you say under your breath as you walk down the hallway, as the door closes to your bedroom, if we throw them all up on the screen and you rationalize them and, and you sweep them away, well, they don't understand how my sibling is acting towards me. They don't know how difficult school is right now. They don't, and you brush those things away. We all have sin that is crouching, hiding. And we must, we must recognize these strong words here given in this text. Its desire is contrary to us. It's contrary to us. We cannot continue leaving it unexposed. We cannot keep walking in the tall grasses of temptation thinking it won't get me this time. That's all it's out to do. So identify those crouching sins in your life and bring light to them. Give them a name. Expose them. Confess them. Bring them out. Bring others in. And sin is ongoing, this hidden presence in our lives, and it is hiding and seeking to take us out. Let's move to scene three. God's judgment and grace. Let's look at the fallout of on Cain for letting sin have its full way. We have read in the latter half of our text this morning that Cain is cursed. God curses him and his work. No longer will the ground bring forth its strength to him. He loses his work. He is cursed. God sends him away. He loses his home. He becomes a fugitive, a wanderer. And Cain's response, which we see in verse 13, is he is broken by the consequences his sin has brought. My punishment is greater than I can bear. And we can recognize, and we might know very well the experience of this. We often embrace sin, experience the consequences, and we have sorrow over the consequences. Maybe we've seen this in our kids when we enact punishments, but we do it as adults as well. We're sorry that sin has happened, but we're sorry really because of the brokenness and the consequences that sin has brought instead of being sorrowful over the sin itself. 
Instead of seeing sin as rebellion against God. Cain expresses a brokenness to the consequences of his sin, but not a sorrow over what sin itself is and what sin does. We see further the consequences of sin. And this is the, the always present reality of sin. The always consequence of sin. Sin always separates. Sin separates. We see this take place in God's curse. He, he sends Cain out as a fugitive, as a wanderer. And Cain himself even expresses that he is away from the, the presence, from the face of the Lord. Verse 16 says that Cain went away from the presence of the Lord. Sin always separates us from God. Every time. Because sin is always rebellion against God. This is why sin is evil. Sin is evil because God is unmatched in goodness and sin always separates us from him. Sin always separates us from unmatched goodness. Further from the presence of the Lord. There is not a measure of sin small enough that does not inflict the damage of separation from the goodness of God. The littlest one that we can think to the greatest that our hands can carry out, all of it breaks relationship with God. Sin always separates. There is judgment that God brings as a result of sin. But we cannot miss the grace that is woven through this text. Throughout this story, we have to notice the way that God is treating Cain. Yes, God pronounces judgment over Cain because he is guilty of wrong and God is perfectly right. And so God must display his righteous justice. But there is a display of abounding grace that we see come from God. We learn about God that his grace will still abound even in the presence of horrific sin. Judgment does come, but God continues this path of displaying his grace. Look at verse 15. Cain is lamenting his consequences and knowing the dangers of being away from the presence of the Lord and wandering the earth. And in, he says, I'm going to be killed out there. And the Lord says to him, not so. Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And then the Lord graciously marks Cain, the rebel, lest anyone should attack him. There is protection provided even for Cain. What does that tell us about God? It tells us that God has a benevolent heart abounding in grace. 
even to rebellious humanity. It teaches us, our Bible teaches us, that God abounds in grace. And this grace that overflows from the Lord onto the rebel Cain is what we would call God's common grace. Let me give you just a simple definition. It should be up on the screen. God's common grace is the undeserved overflow of kindness to all mankind. This is why we can observe the world around us and see those who don't give any mind to God, don't pay attention to it all, even shake their fist at him and experience his kindness and blessings in their lives. God is of such a nature that even rebellious humanity experiences the overflow of his kindness in common grace. This is why the world around us although steeped in sin and rebellion to the goodness of God, is not as bad as it could be. Because God overflows in his common grace. Now, there is much misunderstanding in our world about the character of God and the benevolence of his grace. We can see this, right? One of the prevailing arguments against the existence of God in our culture today is this. If you say there is a God who is all-powerful and all-good, how can he send people to hell? If he is all-powerful and all-good, I like this one, how come bad things happen to good people? This is fundamentally a misunderstanding of the character of God and his benevolent grace upon creation. It, it twists and distorts the ratio of reality of a God who is all good, presiding over all that he has made and pouring out grace upon it and bringing appropriate justice. The holiness of God is his perfection in justice and the grace of God is his overflowing kindness and benevolence. This argument has it all backwards. It doesn't see reality clearly. The more appropriate question is how can an all-powerful God, perfect in justice, bestow blessings upon rebels? That's closer to reality. The world hates God and is blind to his holiness and his benevolent goodness. And so the only way to settle that is to deny he's even there. But to see God and to observe his abundant grace, even upon rebels, is to see the one who overflows with kindness and love even to those who don't deserve it. This text teaches us it teaches us that we need to see and trust God's grace in his benevolent kindness to rebels if we are to rule over sin that is present and crouching in our lives. There's one more scene 
that I want to take us to, to bring a fullness of clarity to this. In verse 10 of our text, the Lord tells Cain that his brother's blood is crying out from the ground. He comes and asks Cain, where is your brother? Cain lies and is sarcastic. And the Lord says, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. That, that'll make your hairs stick up. Every injustice cries out and is heard by the perfect ears of justice, the Lord himself. Not one injustice in all of history has gone unheard by the Lord. God is telling Cain, there's no hiding. Your brother's blood has cried out. What has his blood cried out for? It's cried out for justice. Justice to be served. The blood of Abel cries for justice and therefore God hears and brings judgment upon the sin of Cain. All sin, all sin is in justice because all sin is rebellion against God. And he hears and sees and knows everyone. But there is another one Another innocent one whose blood was spilled. There's another one who was murdered. There's another one who was called out side of the city and put to death. There's another one who has spilled blood and that other one's blood cries out a better word. On a hill outside the city of Jerusalem, the truly only innocent one was slain by those who hated him. And in the murder of this innocent one, the abounding grace of God and the perfect justice of God met together. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, took on flesh, became a man, and came to the world that hated and despised him to bear the sin, the rebellion of all who had shoved God away. And this innocent one was hated and despised and rejected and murdered so that rebels could be brought back into relationship with the one they had rebelled against. The blood of Jesus was spilled so that any who would trust in him, full of faith, would receive the forgiveness of their sins and would be freed from the penalty of sin. The author of Hebrews says in chapter 12, verse 24, And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Jesus' blood cries out. It cries out for justice. But it is a loud cry of justice satisfied. 
a loud cry of justice satisfied for the sinner who would repent and trust in the Lord. Those who have received the redeeming grace of God by faith in the substitutionary death of Jesus have a better word. Believer, you have a better word. You have the blood of Christ. You have, not only can you experience God's common grace, but you have redeeming grace. Redeeming grace. What a God. What a God. What is redeeming grace? It is the undeserved saving love of God to win back sinners those who don't deserve his kindness, his benevolence to win us back. And it only comes by a blood that speaks a better word. The blood of Jesus. Friends, sin is a presence in your life. Sin is crouching, hiding at your door and it is contrary to you but you must rule over it. You have a better word in the fight against sin. The Apostle John in his letter says, if we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Notice Notice what redeeming grace has done in this verse. Notice what it has done. It has called us to repentance and faith. And look, look what it says about God for those who have the, the better word, blood, testimony of Jesus. Look what it says. He will forgive us by what? By his faithfulness and he is just. His justice how many of you have committed a repeated sin and you have gone to the Lord? Thank you for raising your hand. <laughs> Those that didn't, they know. <laughs> but you have gone to the Lord and you've had that hesitation because you've been there before. And you want to ask for his forgiveness in the name of Jesus, but you're like, I've been here before and I'm afraid and I might be here again. And, and I might exhaust God's mercy. I might exhaust his, his pot of forgiveness for me. Friends, listen. The common grace of God, it has a countdown. But not his redeeming grace. And he doesn't Forgive us when we come even again based on this pot of mercy. He forgives us because he is faithful and just. Because when we come even again, we come with the blood that is a better word that has a loud cry of justice to forgive the sinner. For God not to forgive a redeemed one would be for God to forget the justice of the saving work of Jesus. We have confidence to come and confess and ask for forgiveness because justice has been satisfied for the one who has trusted in him. 
So what do we do? We live a life of offering that is out of the abundance of love for a God who would save us, who would die for us, to redeem us. There is a better word. And if you're here this morning and you're not sure you know that redeeming grace of God, the common grace you have experienced in your life is meant to send you to the all-gracious one. It is God's call to you again and again that he is willing, ready, and eager to receive you. If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you come solely on the merit and work of Jesus and repent and turn from your foolish ways and your sin and your rebellion to God and say, I know I'm a sinner. There is no hope in myself. I cannot save myself. I need redeeming grace. He is faithful just to forgive you of sins. So come today. Come. He is ready. And for those of us that know the redeeming grace of God, this text, this word, God calls us to live in the good of that. Go fight sin in the grace and strength and the better word, blood, sacrifice of Jesus. Identify the sin that is crouching and hiding in your life. Expose it with the light of the gospel and throw yourself on the mercy, grace, and justice of the gospel. Do it tomorrow. Do it Tuesday. Do it Wednesday, Thursday. Do it every day because there is no end to God's abounding, redeeming grace and proven justice in the sacrifice of Christ. Live in the good of it, friends. Well, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you and we thank you and we see what sin does. We see how it brings destruction and brokenness and separation and we observe your relenting kindness to show yourself kind and merciful and gracious and eager to bring us unto you. And so we ask that we will see clearly your word, your truth, and our own lives, and that we will live in the good of the gospel, praising and honoring you. In Jesus' name, amen.